Welcome to Momentum Church. When it comes to emotions, I want to talk to you guys a little bit about this, because over the last few weeks, what we've been looking at is how to overcome those emotions, those things that, if we're not careful, will rob us of God's best in our life. God made us to be emotional. I want you, if you would, raise your hands in the room if this week you had a range of emotions. Raise your hand. All right, everybody look around. There are people without their hands up, and so I'd like to welcome all the robots in the building, okay? So these are our cyborg saints in the house. No, literally every single person in this room, you have ranges of emotions all all week long. Every one of us, our days are made up of emotions. Sometimes you're happy, sometimes you're sad, sometimes you're angry, right? Emotions that come and they go. And I want to look at that today because we're going to be keen into a really key, a couple key emotions that are insidious that if we don't get these emotions in check, they will destroy us. Let me go back a little bit of time here just to talk about emotions in general. The Renaissance, during Renaissance England, that's the period of time when they tied emotions to color. And you guys, we do this still to this day based on that. So if I was to say to you, I need some audience participation, y'all help me. I am so sad, today I am feeling... See, you guys are so good. Could you do it with an English accent? That would just be fun. Blue. I'm feeling blue. No. Let me ask you another one, okay? So if you're feel full of fear, all right, and you're a coward, someone may look at you and say, you are yellow. Now, I think there's a generation gap on that one. A lot of the younger ones are like, I don't, I don't. you know, it's because you didn't watch the Duke. You know what I'm saying? You didn't watch those, those Westerns back in the day. But man, that person's yellow. He's yellow, right? Yeah, definitely. You know, you're angry and you're just flat out seen. I'm so happy. I'm just tickled. I probably shouldn't. That just sounds weird to say on the platform, but just tickled pink. Now, one of the most colorful or color matching, like most common color matching that we see is this, that you are green with, yeah, green with envy. And that's what we're looking at today. We're looking at this, I feel envy or I feel jealous or jealousy. And, and where did that come from? Like, like out of the Renaissance, you see these people matching colors with emotions. And then you have somebody, a little famous playwright by the name of Shakespeare, right? Like you've heard of him before. And in his Venice, The Merchant of Venice, he coined this. He called it green-eyed jealousy. Green-eyed jealousy. It's the first time that you begin to see this tied into that. And that idea of green-eyed jealousy, being able to see something that somebody else has, and you want that so bad, your eyes are green. Not like pretty green like yours, all right? But like, like green, like, ooh, like evil green-eyed jealousy. Now, last night, I got to be at the Toby Mac concert. How many people at the Toby Mac concert last night? Your seats weren't as good as mine. To die, to die. So I'm at the Toby Mac concert last night, and I'm going to be honest, it's the first concert I have ever been at where literally I wasn't jealous of other people's seats. For years, we were poor church planters. Every seat we had at every ball game, at every concert, it was always in the nosebleed section. You know, it's like, I think that's Toby Mac, or maybe that's Brian Shaw. I, 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 if it's Clint, you know. Always, but last night, oh, last night, Pastor and his wife and my two kids, we literally had the best seat in the whole stadium. 
Absolutely. A friend of ours works for the tour, called us last week, said, hey, would you guys like to go to the concert? Yes, we would. We got some seats for you. When we get there, he says, meet me on the floor. Oh, the floor's good. Because I'm usually, floor's good. So we end up meeting him on the floor. He goes, follow me. And I'm like, oh, okay. And we're in the back. And I'm like, well, this is good. This is the floor. It's in the back. This is good. Next thing you know, we're going from F. I can't do it backwards. I wish I could. E. (laughs) D. C. Whatever. We get all the way to A, which is the front row. And he's like, hold on here. Um, Your seats are down this way on the front row. So we start off on the right side, stage left, right side. And he's like, your seats are down here. Oh, okay. And excuse me. I'm sorry. Excuse me. No, no. Those are our seats down there. (laughs) Excuse me. You know, like, no, your seats are good. Not as good as ours. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. And we get all the way down. Guys, this is the fancy thing. The stage is closer than you, Caleb, like right there. And then To the left, there's just like a little space where there's the catwalk, you know, where the singers will walk down and get closer to the people that don't have as good a seat as you, you know what I'm saying? Like, (laughs) that's where we were. Like, we couldn't have had better seats. And I know it sounds silly, but I'm watching my little maverick, who, by the way, got his dance on. I'll post a video maybe maybe later today. And um, I'm watching him, and he's having a blast, and I'm just thinking, it took me 50 years of going to concerts and being jealous. This kid, first big concert of his life, and he's literally in the spit zone of Toby Mac. Got a high five and a fist bump. Not only that, at the end, we had special tickets. We got to go on the stage for 60 seconds and do a dance party with everybody. And you're like, so carnal. It was. But we enjoyed it so much. It was just the idea that Jealousy can be seen in many ways. But for me, it's always that idea that they have a better seat than I do. I bet they're experiencing this in a better way. I bet, I bet this is so much more joyful where they're at in the stadium. I bet this is something they have an advantage. I wonder, I bet they knew somebody. Well, they probably did, you know? But they had means. They probably do. And it would affect me. And man, last night, it was just like, oh my gosh. So all I'm saying is, don't judge me. Shut up. Because everyone in this room, at times, you fight being jealous or envious of other people. Every one of us. And I want to look at some working definitions here. So let's go with jealousy. Jealousy is this. It's hostility toward a rival or one believed to enjoy an advantage. That person has what they have because they're a rival and they have some advantage over you. Envy, a feeling of discontented or resentful longing aroused by someone else's possessions, qualities, or luck. It's a desire to have quality, a quality, a possession, or other desirable attributes belonging to someone else. And what's funny about that is, is my friend, Mitch, who was right here playing the sax today, a couple weeks ago, he got his hands on a, a nice Jeep. It's gray, got the Bubba tires, got the black canvas. And for some reason, I've never even liked Jeeps. But I want his Jeep. What is that? You know, it's a possession that he has. And I'm just like, why does he have this Jeep? A year ago, I was really, really happy with my expedition. My 2014, what I thought was a bougie expedition. But Mitch's is bougier. And I somehow want it. And so I can look at that and see what he has and want that so bad, I stop appreciating what God gave me a year ago, right? 
I like what Thomas Adams said when it refers to this. Listen to this. He that looks through a green glass sees no other color. Literally, jealousy and envy. It will affect the way you see everything in your life. And that's why it's such an insidious, I'm going to use that word a lot today, such an insidious emotion. We're going to unpack it because these two emotions are unlike any other emotions that you experience, especially in regards to the impetus, where these emotions originate. So I want to look at a biblical story and see a little bit of this give and take of jealousy and envy between two sisters. We're going to look at the sisters named Leah and Rachel. So let's stand to our feet. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29. Give you a little backstory. I probably should have did that before you stood up, but that's okay. I stand up the whole You can stand up for a minute. And so Jacob, this young man, he goes to his kinsmen, these people, um, his, his, his mother's brother Laban, and he goes to him. He's looking for a bride. He ends up going to Laban. Laban's a shepherd, and Laban has sheep that, that, that he's looking for people to work with. And long story short, Jacob's trying to find a wife. And this woman comes named Rachel. And the Bible says that she is fair of form. So she is fine. And so she shows up, catches Jacob's eye. Jacob is talking with Laban. Laban wants Jacob to work for him and basically says, look, I want you to work for me, but I want you to work for me for free. And he says, I got an idea. That one, give me Rachel. Okay, work for me for seven years and you can have Rachel. Long story short, he gives him Rachel. What happens on Rachel's wedding night and Jacob's wedding night, somehow a deception takes place. And instead of him marrying Rachel, he actually married Leah, who the Bible says was weak of eye. Don't know if that means she squinted a lot. <laughs> Not sure if that just means that, you know what? I look at you and you make me weak. My eyes, you make me weak. I mean, like, but it basically is in contrasting to her sisters, fair of form, weak of eye. And so I have a feeling there's been tension amongst these sisters for years. And now here we go. (laughs) So his heart is for Rachel, but his father-in-law gives him Laban. And his father Laban gives him Leah. And he's got to deal with this. So let's watch this. Genesis 29, 31 through 34. Um, and then let me bring up to speed another thing. People will say that then he had to work another seven years to get Rachel. If you read the scripture, it looks like he received her within a week of that time, but he still had to work another seven years. So basically he had to work that time. Now he's married to two women while he's working for Laban. Okay. So verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. I want you to catch this. You have a woman who is barren, And you have a woman who was hated. She felt hated by Laban, or by Jacob. She felt despised by her husband, but Rachel was loved by her husband, was barren. And so she's broken as well. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore a son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I've borne him three sons and I named him Levi. Go ahead and have your seats. Can you imagine this? I'm having children and hopefully now my husband will love me. I love my husband. I know he loves me. He thinks I'm fair of form, but I can't have his kids, and I just feel so at a loss. You have two women 
that are in such peril, looking at each other's lives and wanting each other's lives. Genesis 30, verse 1, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children, she envied her sister. So I didn't want you to think I just made that up. That's what the scripture says. She said to Jacob, give me children or I shall die. And this is not a sermon on barrenness, not one bit. This is a sermon on this sister looking at what the other sister had. And one sister looking at the other sister, what she had, and realizing they both felt as if they didn't have enough. They both could not appreciate what they were walking in in that moment. This isn't just a sermon about barrenness. And so she's saying, I have all this, but if I don't have children, I'm going to die. I have all these kids, but I don't have my husband's honor. If I can't turn his head the way Rachel turns his head, I'm going to die. And these women, this is the clash that you see. And so they begin to figure out ways to get around this. And, and so what happened was Rachel takes her servant Bilhah and goes into her. And she tells that servant to go ahead and have children with Jacob. It was a different time at that time. This is pre a lot of commandments, okay? No men in the room try this, okay? <laughs> and so basically a child is born and, 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 and on and on and on. And, and, and so you can go deeper into that story if you want to look at it. But basically, this child is born in the, to, to, to Bilhah, this, this servant girl, the servant of Rachel. And in verse 8, Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and have prevailed. So she called the name of that child Naphtali. I want you to catch that. I've wrestled with my sister and I've prevailed. No, no you had a baby through a servant girl. You, 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 but you have created, because of comparison, because of jealousy and envy, you have created a rivalry between your sister that you feel you're in competition and in a fight with your sister to the point that you've said, now I've wrestled and I've won. I'm going to show you in a little bit what jealousy and envy will do and how it separates people. And so you can see here, she's feeling like finally she has wrestled and prevailed against her sister. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah. So here we go. The other sister's not bearing any more children at this point. So she takes her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. And then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And Leah said, good fortune has come. So we'll call his name Gad. And then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And Leah said, happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called his name Asher. I'm happy because the ladies in town look at me and say, oh, look at all the kids Leah has for, ja for, for Jacob. Not I'm happy because of certain things. Like, like, and what I, what's wild is she continues to say, now my husband will honor me. Now I will get what I deserve. Can you see how it's jealousy and envy deep down on the inside of these two sisters that's eating them away? Genesis 30, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, this is what Joseph means, may the Lord add to me another son. Joseph means may he add. Oh my gosh. How would it be to be a little boy named Joseph, a little boy born, and you know, I love you, but I really want the next child. Why? Because Leah has all these kids. Literally. She couldn't be content with what she had with Joseph. She's saying, Lord, add some more. It's wonderful there's Joe, but may you continue to add more. She wants more, more. Give me another son. 
And so here's the thing about it. We have to beware because the want of more can rob you of the reality of what you already have. The enemy loves to use jealousy and envy to steal from us. And there is something different about the emotions of envy and jealousy that's different than all other emotions. And I believe understanding those key differences, they are going to help us understand the, the, the monstrous grip that jealousy and envy have on our lives. And I need to give you a little caveat because I grew up not saying monster. I grew up saying monster. And I may fall into my Kentucky hillbilly monster roots. You say monster, monster, monster. And so in the first service, I said Munster the whole time like it was nothing. Like, just Munster, Munster, Munster. Munster, Munster. You talking about cheese? A place in Germany? Or Herman? You know, like, like, what are you talking about? You know? And so I'm hoping I can say Munster. But I just, I just grew up saying Munster. Munster. So we'll see. But the Munster script. So <clears throat> here's the thing about emotions. Most emotions come to you like no fault of your own. You have an impetus, an experience, and then you feel emotions. A situation happens, and you have an emotional response. That's how emotions work. Now, what you do with those emotions, that's up to you. But the impetus for the emotion, that is something outside of yourself. Somebody makes you mad. They do something stupid to hurt you, and you become angry. That impetus is their action towards you. That's the impetus. The response, the emotional response is your anger. Now you got to deal with something with that. You got to make a choice. Do I be angry and sin or do like scripture? I'm angry and I'm not going to sin. What do I do with my anger? But here's the thing about the emotion of jealousy and envy. They are completely different than other emotions. These two emotions find their impetus not from without of you. These two emotions find their impetus from within you. Like, like I, want to, I, want to, I want you to understand that, okay? So let me explain impetus and emotions. You have some sort of an incident, and now you have anger. You have some sort of a loss, now you feel grief. Impetus, emotion. Something external, now you feel something internal. Injury, now you feel hurt or pain, or that may cause nervousness. But when it comes to this idea of, 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 of envy and jealousy... There is something different at the root of these because what's at the root of envy and jealousy isn't outside of oneself. It's completely in control by you. The impetus is actually within yourself. And guess what that impetus is? Comparison. Comparison. What's at the root of jealousy and envy? Comparison. A consideration or estimate of the similarities or dissimilarities between two people or two things. And when you create that comparison and you see somebody else that has that advantage over you or that experience over you or that possession over you and you create that comparison, you can come away saying, I don't measure up. I don't have what they have. They have some sort of advantage outside of, of what I could possess or have possessed. And comparison causes you to start to feel jealousy and envy, but comparison you have complete control of. It starts with you. Somebody didn't hit your car. It made you mad. It started with you. You looked out, saw something. I can't believe Pastor Ross got those good tickets. And now you couldn't enjoy your Toby Mac concert. Because your eyes were on something else. Amen? I like it. 
And so comparison results in jealousy and envy, envy, but comparison is rooted in you. It's not rooted in the object. It's not rooted in the person. It's it's rooted in you comparing yourself to the object and you comparing yourself to the person. The person you're comparing yourself with doesn't have you or your emotional state even in mind. You're doing all this comparison, and sometimes what happens is we start to find ourselves at odds with people that we're jealous with or envious with. They don't even recognize what's going on. They don't, they're just living their life. That's it. They don't realize that you're going through this whole internal battle. This is why jealousy and envy are so dangerous and why they shape you so powerfully because it's something deep on the inside of you. Shakespeare, as I said, in his Merchant of Venice, speaking to the green-eyed jealousy, he adds to this. He adds a layer in the play Othello where he starts to now not just call it green-eyed jealousy, he starts to talk about the green-eyed monster. Monster. (laughs) He starts to talk about that, the green-eyed monster of jealousy. He's personifying it, making it almost a creature that will kill and destroy because he's recognizing that's what jealousy and envy actually can do. And in that play, he wrote it this. He said, I love it. He said, oh, beware, my Lord of jealousy. It is the green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat it feeds on. In other words, I'm full of envy. I'm full of jealousy. And it literally will eat my own self. That's how insidious this monster is. And, 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 and I just, I guess my brain went down a literary um, um, path this week. I started thinking of other times we see in literature monsters being created. And I thought of, of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And if you think about it, Victor Frankenstein, he creates this creature. He creates this, this hominoid, if you will. And then that monster that he created ended up taking him on a journey to destruction. The whole story is one of the most convoluted. Now, if you've watched the movie, eh, if you read the book, it is one of the most convoluted journeys you'll ever read. It's fabulous. It really is. But with it, his brother is killed, his father is killed, his wife is killed, and then eventually he loses his own life, Victor Frankenstein does, out on an icy flow. He ends up losing his own life all because he had created this monster. In Victor Frankenstein's last word, he said this. He said, seek happiness and tranquility and avoid ambition. Wasn't the idea that you shouldn't be ambitious, but he created something out of his ambition for more. He created something that literally became the thing that destroyed him. And that's how jealousy is. We have to have tranquility. We have to have peace when it comes to looking at ourselves and comparing ourselves to others. Have peace with how God has created you. Have peace with what God has placed in you. Have peace with what God has given you. Rather than looking at others and comparing and then allowing that to become a monster that begins to destroy. Jealousy and envy are the monsters we create that end up destroying us. Augustine said, envy and hatred try to pierce our neighbor with a sword, but the blade cannot reach him unless it first passes through our own body. It's the monster that destroys. There's a price to jealousy and envy. Let me say it this way. There's a cost to comparison. And I was driving down the street, running this by Amy a couple weeks ago, and I, I, the Lord just gave me this cost of comparison. And I was like, baby, here, drive. I'm going to write. And she said, no, she didn't do that. And so I was like, I got to pull over. So I get over to the gas station. I'm, I'm speaking as fast as I can in my thing. And what the Lord laid in my heart is this, that what comparison does, here's the cost of comparison. It will cause you to be numb. 
That's what comparison does. You will become numb to your own success. You can't celebrate the wins you have. You become numb to it because you're looking at the wins that other people have and you're comparing yourself to them. So you become numb to your own success. You'll become numb to your own abilities because you see everybody else's abilities in the positive, but you always see your abilities in the deficit. I wish I could be more. I wish I had more. I wish I could. I wish I could. Man, I tell you, when I first started preaching, I wanted to have a voice like Charles Stanley, you know, or preach like Bishop Gilbert Earl Patterson. Y'all don't even know who that is. He was one of my favorite black preachers from Memphis, Tennessee. Back in the day, I listened to him every Sunday morning. I wanted to preach. Mm, I wanted to preach like I could. That's not, that's not who I was, you know. That's what I wanted. And I had to get very, very okay with just who I am and my delivery and my speech and, my, and, and not become numb to my abilities and realize the things that I was good at and so on. Here's another thing that will cause you to be numb. When you live with jealousy and envy, you'll become numb to allies. Because if you live your life always jealous and envious, you will turn every ally into a rival. They become competition. Every person, every situation, you're measuring yourself up and seeing if you're winning or they're losing. Or are you losing and they're winning? But just that posturing alone instantly causes them to not be an ally, but to become competition. Comparison turns allies into enemies, and they don't even know it. Another thing that comparison will do, it'll cause you to become numb to collaboration. Collaboration. Comparison will cause you to be fiercely independent and rob you from the benefits of collaboration. When it comes to the idea of learning from others, growing from others, being able to give and take with each other, when you live a life that's full of jealousy and envy, you can't receive from other people because they are competitors, not collaborators. I see it with pastors struggling to be able to connect with other preachers because they feel insecure in themselves. And that pastor down the street, man, could pour life into that other pastor, could pour teaching, information, uh, administrative um, 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 direction and, 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 and insight but so often, pastor live, pastors live isolated lives because they're so full of envy and jealousy and comparison that they see every other pastor as a competitor, not a collaborator. And, I, and it may be the same in your industry. Maybe you're a real estate agent, and every single person's a competitor. And you've robbed yourself of learning amongst a group of others in your industry because they're all competitors, not collaborators. Does that make sense? Jealousy and envy will cause you to be numb to collaboration. Comparison will turn every potential collaborator, as I said, into a competitor. So how do you squash the emotions of jealousy and envy? How do you do that? You do it by counteracting comparison within. The same way jealousy and envy has an impetus that starts within, you're going to fix it by squashing comparison from within. You're going to not look to the outside to fix it, not look to somebody to change so that you'll feel better about the stuff you don't feel like you have. No, no, this all goes within yourself. And so we're going to counteract comparison from within. To counteract something means to reduce its force or neutralize it. We've got to reduce the force of jealousy and envy in our life, that power of comparison that robs us and causes us to be numb. And so the first thing we're going to do, we're going to go through these quick. I want you to open your Bibles to Psalm 139, 139, Psalm 139. The first thing is this. We need to remind ourselves of the uniqueness and giftings of God that we possess. 
So number one, if you're going to um, um, be able to come to that place where you counteract comparison, remind yourself, how has God made you unique? How has God created you with special giftings and blessings? Here's what the scripture says in Psalm 139, verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Do you hear that personal pronoun? There wasn't one thing in there about other people. It was that idea that he was taking time to remind himself of how God had created him. You formed me. And this is a man that was tore up, man. He had made a lot of bad decisions in life, but he was taking time with God to remind himself of who he was and the giftings and the things that God had made him uniquely for. Man, I came across a story this week. Somebody sent it to me, and it was such a blessing. And it's about a woman by the name of Elder Lucy Smith. And this is a woman that was born in 1875, January 14th. Guess where she was born? In Woodstock, Georgia. Isn't that neat? In a one-room log cabin, five other siblings living in that cabin with her mama. Daddy had ran off. It was just them here in Woodstock, Georgia. She didn't go to school until she was 13 years old. She's there growing up in this town just 10 years after the Civil War was over. And long story short, she ends up marrying. She has nine kids of her own. And then her husband leaves her. And in 1910, like many, many others in the South, they moved to Chicago. And so Lucy goes to Chicago. And while she's there, she starts to attend a predominantly white church. Church was called Stone Church. It's a famous church in Pentecostal history in America. Famous church. And so at Stone Church, men like, like, like um, 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 William Seymour, who was the man who lit the revival's fires there at Azusa Street in California. Men like Smith Wigglesworth, who powerful praying man that would come there. Men like John G. Lake, another powerful man of prayer and healing ministry out of the northwest of the United States. Maria Edgeworth. All these different healing evangelists would come here. And so she's this young African-American mama, 35 years old, moves her kids there, and she's going to this church. And God starts to do a work in her heart, and she feels led to start a prayer meeting. And she could have in that moment been like, who am I? Look at all these people that come through here, all these great elders and deacons and all these wonderful people. Who am I? But she started a prayer meeting with two other people in a one-room home, and it started to grow. God started to use it. Lives started to be changed. People started being healed. And long story short, what ends up happening is within just a short three-year time period, they had moved into a larger facility. After 10 years, in 1926, she built a $65,000 church, over a million dollars equivalent today, and by the 1930s, they had nearly 5,000 members in her church. She said that the, 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 the healing services were such part of the growth of that. But the thing about it was, God began to speak to her to take her ministry even further. And she started, I love this radio broadcast, she started the Glorious Church of the Air radio program. That just sounds like 1933, doesn't it? And she was the first black person, black preacher to be on the radio nationwide. 
with hundreds of thousands of lives being changed. I say all that because Lucy Smith is an example of what tremendous exploits God can do with a simple yielded vessel who understood how God had uniquely created her, her giftings, the blessings of God upon her. That's, that's what you see. And here's beautiful. You ready for this? When she passed away, over 60,000 people came to her funeral. One of the largest funerals was the largest funeral up to that date in Chicago history. Elder Lucy Smith. Come on, somebody. Whew. Don't you know she had a hard way to go? Don't you know she could have looked at everybody else and discounted herself? Here's what her greatest encouragement was. All right, Elder Smith, this is what she would tell people. And I, I'm just wanna, I just want to get real spiritual with you. She would look at everybody and just say this. You be you Boo. No, she didn't say that. <laughs> Look to somebody and say, you be you, boo. Just say, you be you, boo. But that's what she said. Like, she said, <laughs> she did. She said, just be yourself. That was her trade. Everybody knew that. that. She'd always say, just be yourself. Just be yourself. Just be yourself. And there was people after people after people would say, you being yourself will never be enough. But she knew her being herself, being used by God would be more than enough. And it was. And it was. She was known to have little regard for grammar. She never tried to be an orator. She would just minister very patiently, very calmly, they said. And God would move powerfully. She wasn't trying to be John G. Lake, Smith Wigglesworth, or William Seymour. She was being the best Lucy Smith she could be. The best divorced woman in a time when a person of color couldn't get ahead like they could now. And so on. I mean, like, like, it blows my mind what she accomplished for Jesus. Why? Because she reminded herself of the uniqueness and giftings and blessings of God upon her life. And then that plays into the next thing. Number two, recognize the uniqueness and giftings of God in others. I believe that Lucy would have looked at other people in the church and they have their place and I have my place. They're doing what they're doing. I'm doing what I'm doing. She didn't see him as competition. She saw the blessing of God and the giftings of God in other people. If you can't get to a place where you can praise what God is doing in other people's lives, you will always be living in comparison and robbed and eaten away by the monster of envy and jealousy. That's the cost of comparison. So number two, recognize, as you're recognizing the giftings in others, or in yourself, recognize the giftings in others. And then the final thing, we kind of lit on a little bit, the third thing is reestablish praise as a discipline. I, I believe you cannot be a person that fully lives a life of praise if you're living a life full of jealousy and envy. And then I think you can counter-engineer that, and if you're struggling with jealousy and envy, become a person of praise. What do you mean, Pastor? Verse 14, Psalm 139, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He's praising God. He's coming to this place where he's thanking God for who he is. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. In other words, God, I praise you because you have so much in store for me. And the thoughts that you have for me, I thank you for those things. I praise you for those. It's so good when I recount all that you have done and all that you desire to do. I wake up thinking I've been dreaming, but I realize this is real. That's what it says. I love it. I wasn't dreaming. I was awake the whole time. This wasn't a dream. This is who my God really is. 
And so establish praise as a discipline in your life. That's praise to God, all right? God, I thank you for this in my life. I thank you for that in my life. But then on the other side, it's praise of others. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in their life. I thank you for the giftings in their life. Lord, I see such giftings in their life, and I see weaknesses in my life. Guess what? That's a perfect mix for collaboration. That's a perfect mix for partnership. That's a perfect, you know what? You got things I don't have. I have things you don't have. Let's go change the world together. Rather than allow the the green-eyed monster of jealousy to eat from within. And so what I want you to do, I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to think of an area in your life that you feel like you don't measure up. What we're going to do, we're just going to do a little quick exercise of prayer. Think of one thing in your life that you just feel like you don't measure up. Or something you feel like you lack. Or you see in others and it does cause you jealousy and envy. And then when you have that, I want you to raise your hand. Just raise your hand when you have that all over the room. I see that hand. My hand's up too. Everyone's hands, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just keep your hand up. We're going to do a little exercise here. And so that one thing, that one thing. And then what I want to do, I want to pray. And as I pray, and we get quiet as I pray, I want to ask that God would show you two things that make you uniquely you. Or two things that are blessings from him that he can remind you of. And so as I pray, what I want you to do is as I pray, when God, when you feel those two things, when you sense what God is showing you, when you come to that realization, oh, God, thank you for this. I do see this as a gifting in my life. Or thank you for this. I do see this as a, a, a blessing from you. When you have that, then put your hand down. So keep it up. And when God gets, shows you those two things, then put your hand down. Father, in the name of Jesus, we just come to you right now. Lord, we're broken people. It's easy for us to be envious and jealous at times, Lord. But Lord God, we want to come to you and ask for healing from you. Reveal to us, Lord God, how you see us, your thoughts toward us, how you have fearfully and wonderfully made us for your purposes, God. Place those in our hearts right now, Lord God, to remind us of the giftings and blessings upon our life. As God places that in your heart, you can put your hand down. Jesus, right now, we just ask for forgiveness, holding on to comparison and allowing those things to rob us and to cause us to be numb. Jesus, I thank you for setting us free in this area. In Jesus' name, everybody give God big praise. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us for this week's message. For more information, please check out www.momentumchurch.tv.